Welcome to this fine study on the book of Hebrews. I invite you to open to that book of Hebrews. I love that you're uh, taking notes. And, you know, the studies show that even if you never look back upon those notes, you will, for whatever reason, remember better something that you wrote down. So that, I mean, I like to doodle when people talk. It probably looks really disrespectful. I like to take notes and kind of draw pictures and stuff. And I can think back to drawing something on paper and I'll remember what they were talking about. Scientists call it kinesthetic memory. If you tie your muscle actions in with what's going on in your brain, it's better. So if you have a kid like I do, who likes to doodle while they're in church or, or whatever, I don't shut it down. I, I let them do that because I really think there will be connections there. Plus, the Holy Spirit is bigger than doodles, if you get beyond that. So anyway. Um, all right, so we have two days left. Is that right, Kevin? We have today and tomorrow. Right? So we made it to basically... The, yeah. <laughs> we can, I, would, I would love to. Although you're going to hear me say something later that may surprise you. I'm not going to tell you what in regards to the middle of the, of the book. Um, we have to kind of back up to chapter two just a little bit. All right? We, we, or go, yeah, we kind of, we dabbled. We dabbled in the beginning of two. Now we're going to go full-fledged into the water of chapter two. We kind of ended yesterday talking about angels, and now we pick it up at chapter two. I have a question. Sure. Um, what was the time I have never seen or read anyone stating that James is a likely candidate. Yeah. In fact, Martin Luther didn't want the book of James in the New Testament. You've heard that story too. Yeah. He was, but Luther wanted Hebrews in, even though we weren't sure who, who wrote it. So he argued with Paul. Wasn't he a long time after? Who, Martin Luther? Yeah. Yeah, a couple, uh -huh. couple hundred years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, we just celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And we have a Lutheran pastor in town who likes to say, I'm really thankful for the Reformation because otherwise he, he wouldn't have a job. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just as an aside, Methodists are interesting. We're, we're um, Protestants, sort of, because John Wesley, does anybody remember John Wesley's job until his dying day? I mean, he actually had an appointment. He actually had a, a priesthood. He was an Anglican. John, John Wesley was an Anglican priest. That was never, this, this, he was an Anglican priest. Now when I say priest, I don't mean like Catholic. I mean like he was, a, he was in the Church of England. And the Church, the Church of England, Episcopal slash Anglican, is very interesting in that um, it's kind of Catholic, but kind of Protestant. And so we call it the Via Media, the middle way. Which is why an, Ang an Anglican or Episcopal church has a quasi-Catholic feel without all of the Catholic sort of stuff from the Middle Ages and the medieval period attached to it. And so Wesleyans are draw their lineage to Anglicanism. And so like the Free Methodist Church, we use the, the um, 27 of the 39 Articles of Confession from the Anglican Church. So I'm not 100% Lutheran like, say you know, the Lutheran Church, obviously, or, or you name it, sort of like Baptist, Presbyterian, what have you. I'm not 100% Catholic, most certainly not. I'm actually kind of Anglican at my core. And that's why we use Revised Common Lectionary. That's why we talk about sprinkling. And that's why 
Some United Methodist churches are very high church and very formal with the liturgical garb, and some are very contemporary and stuff. I just want to tell you as a pastor, sometimes I wish I could get away with just wearing the robes because it would be so much easier. <laughs> so much easier. And so, so crazy to figure out what to wear. So. Anyway, I don't know why, but that seemed important at the time, but the time has passed. Here we go. Uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels, which we just talked about yesterday, since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, question, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The writer of Hebrews just revealed something to us about about himself or herself. And it's this. The writer of Hebrews writes as if they did not exist at the same time Jesus did. That they were not witness to him. That they are receiving this information secondhand. That's important. So the writer of Hebrews is even more like us than we may have realized in that the writer of Hebrews never saw or witnessed Jesus himself. So what he's going on is what? What does, he, what does he say? What does she write in Hebrews? There were those who did see him and who told the story in such a convincing way that they believed it as fact. And remember, in Corinthians, Paul talks about how there were 500 plus people who saw Jesus post-resurrection. So Hebrews is like one of the first documents to carry on that tradition of the oral tradition of those who saw Jesus. And so I'm like the writer of Hebrews. I, had, I never saw, I wish I had. I wish I had been around when Jesus was here. But I'm also nervous that I would have been one of the people shouting crucify him perhaps. Or I would have been one of the people who kind of raised an eyebrow at him. Because I'm not, I know who I am. I know myself well enough to know I probably would have been taken aback by this rabbi. But Hebrews, the writer knows what it's like to hear about Jesus and not know him. But there's also something to be said about the fact <coughs> That God himself testifies. I would look at it this way. First and, first and foremost, this is what all of chapter 1 is about. The Son is superior to angels. Amen? Yeah. Right. So do we worship angels? No. No, because to worship angels looks ridiculous because they're worshiping him. Aaron, remember? Yes, <laughs> But angels have a job. I know. Don't, yeah. It could, be, it could make worship weird tonight if you're like, hey, everybody, let's worship me. <laughs> That's Lucifer talk right there. That's when we got to ask you to step down. I don't do that. By the way, somebody texted and said, should we change the lyrics of the Awakening Chorus to Yahweh Reigns? I felt, I felt so bad because I'm like, oh no, I, it was you? Thank you, my brother. I thought, oh no, what did I just do? I just, uh, Are we still going to heaven? I, I'm concerned about all of our, I'm concerned about my salvation, most of all. Here's what I say. I think I, it's fine. We all know what we mean. We all know who we're talking about. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. it's okay. How could you change the awakening for <laughs> Are we going to sing it tomorrow night, maybe? I don't know. We'll find out. He knows. Okay. We'll sing both of them tomorrow. Both? Oh, well, we can't do that either. Can we do that? Sure. It's allowed. It's allowed. Okay. Egg each other. Yahweh. <laughs> Son is superior to angels. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Angels speak the message of the Son. Yes, 
Do you agree with that? Yes. Why? Yeah. Because in chapter 2, we have to pay attention to what we've heard because of the message spoken through angels. And this was not a suggestion. This was a binding message. It's the language of covenant. That's what the angels are speaking. And ultimately, even though we're in the Old Testament, when the angels are speaking a message, they're speaking the message of the Son. Because remember, He's the Word. The Word of His power. So, so you've got to like think, okay, even when we're talking about the Old Testament, you have to even attach the Ten Commandments to Jesus. Okay, Jesus existed. He's always existed. He's the living Word. He's speaking these things, even in the Old Testament. We just don't see it yet, because he, He's only prefigured in the priests and others. Now, we, you and I, did not see the Son. We didn't see Jesus. But we do see what? We see that there are people who are around him who believe, right? And God testifies to this message through certain things as well. And that's what we read about in verse 4. God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember we talked a few days ago about semiotics? We talked about uh, this picture of the patents and how this is a semiotic. This is a sign, just a representation. That's not really them. That's supposed to point us to a reality. Why is that picture here in this building? It points us to the reality of the fact that this building is named after them. Okay, so this building is a sign, isn't it? Ah, then what, what, are we supposed to focus on this building and say, good job, building? No, the building is a sign that points to the patents, right? Mm -hmm. The people. Then we go, we look at those people and say, wow, this is amazing. You've been honored and, and sort of remembered and, and celebrated in your many years of faithfulness. And, but it, it doesn't stop there, because then what are they going to do? So it's always a semiotic. It always points, points, points. Somebody noticed that I'm not wearing a wedding ring. It's not because I'm not married. Happily married. So is Emily. She's my wife. It has to work that way. So, <laughs> this is why I don't wear a wedding ring. My uncle Tim, plumber, he's working. He's on top of his work van, putting tiny ladders down. And he goes and he jumps down, and a hook on his, on his truck catches his wedding ring. And his finger his fingers gone. So his left hand looks like a cartoon character. And they, they took the rest of this out, and they pushed the other one together, and so now he's got three fingers and a thumb. That really scares me. So I, I have one, I wear it, but I'm so nervous that I'll do something like jump off a thing or go down a foam hill with the you know, like that. Like I, I, if I'm working on my car, if I'm doing anything, I take that thing off. The ring is a semiotic. I've taken the semiotic off. That doesn't mean that I'm not married, right? It just means that the semiotic is missing. I'm still married. So when God testifies to it by signs, it's not about the sign. It's not about the wonder and the miracle. It's always about Jesus. But there's an even greater semiotic for the Christian, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit. So what is the Holy Spirit doing right now to give us a sign of his presence? What's that? Convicting. Yeah. Oh, sure. He's convicting. Like, right now. I mean, in this moment. Like, don't, don't make it. Bring it right here. What is the Holy Spirit? What could the Holy Spirit possibly be doing right now? To testify to the presence of God. What? Teaching, right. Because it's not. I mean, we want to learn from the Holy Spirit. Not for me. I want us together, me too, to learn from the Holy Spirit. What else is the Holy Spirit doing? Encouraging. Encouraging, absolutely. Revealing. What's that? Revealing. Revealing. Revealing what? His word pointing us back to Uh-huh. Yeah, what else? Comforting. Speaking through the word. Yeah, speaking through the word, of course. Comforting. Counseling. He's counseling. He's our counselor. Uniting. He's united. He's tying us together. Around what? Around what? Jesus. Right, because if, if Christ is at the very center and holds everything together, we want to be tied to him. And the Holy Spirit enables that. It's sort of like what we talked about yesterday, where 
it's easy to take the presence of God for granted, and we don't really know what we've got until it's gone. Like, I think that hell, it's not the fire and the brimstone that's scary, it's the separation from God. Amen. That's what makes it frightening, is, is, is separation from Him. So the Holy Spirit is doing things in this room and in you right now that we don't even realize. It's the same way that, like, when your kids were toddlers, and they'd be walking through the living room, and they'd be, they'd be pointing their forehead right for the corner of that, of that coffee table, right? And you reach down as a parent, and you go, whoop. Or when the kid is, like, trying to, like, walk up the stairs, and, you know, stands, and gets a hold of the handrail, and then just starts to fall backwards, and you catch it. Does the kid ever stop to say, thank you so much for saving my life? No. No, it doesn't even realize what just happened, that gravity almost, like, did its thing. I think that the Holy Spirit is doing that for us all the time. And we're like little babies. We have no idea what he's doing to intervene. I think that the angels are stopping things from happening. and we've, We have no idea how many close calls we've already had this morning. Yeah. We're like Mr. Magoo. You know that. <laughs> That's an old, old reference. <laughs> and isn't it interesting, too, that it's not people who testify, but God who testifies to it? By signs, wonders, various miracles? So let's say that there's a healing today. Let's say somebody experiences a healing. What was that healing really about? It's about the coming kingdom of God, where all things are healed and restored. You've always got to look to the Lord. So my question for us is, where do we see Jesus today? Let me, let me give you a really precise example, because I, like you, I'm trying to become more aware of God's presence. And so this was the scene that I encountered this morning as I was walking to breakfast. Walking down that path from Oak Ridge Lodge. You know how I remember the name of it? I, I always sing, Elvira, because Oak Ridge yeah. Boys. <laughs> so I'm walking down the path, and this is what I see. Somebody is at a cottage, and they're pulling out weeds from the garden. Um, the kids are out playing Anarchy Pool. You know that thing with the pool balls? And the Anarchy. <laughs> and just throwing... Carpet balls. Oh. Carpet ball, right. That's the way better now. And then... <laughs> and then uh, a, a kid has a frisbee, like an elementary school kid, and he throws it, and I look to where he throws it, and there's nobody there to catch yeah. the kid. And the kid says, I got it! Like that. <laughs> now, that just may sound like anecdotal Thursday morning stuff. Here's where I'm trying to pay attention. When I saw her pulling the weeds out of the garden, I thought, this reminds me of uh, Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam and Eve's job is to tend the garden. She's obviously enjoying this. There's something about actually improving this and cleaning it up. Man, that's the presence of God there. We're drawn back to this sort of being co-creators with God. I see the, I see the carpet ball. I see this. I see, man, these kids, they don't have a care in the world. They're not paying attention to the economy or the world stage or anything like that. They don't even care about their next meal. They just want to throw pool balls at each other. Like, that's as far as it goes. There's just, there's just joy and release, you know? They're, they're just having a good time, and they're free to do it. And then the guy who throws the frisbee to no one, he's not embarrassed. He's not self-aware. He's not ashamed. He's maybe he's throwing it to an angel. The angel dropped it, if so. They were angels in the outfield. <laughs> you know, and you don't want to over-spiritualize it, but I think you and I run the risk of under-spiritualizing things. I want to be aware of the distinct and real presence of Jesus. I mean, there are people I talk to, and I just can sense the presence of Christ in them. And I don't think that I'm... I have some special ability. I think that we recognize that a lot. Maybe we just don't know that's what it is. I'm just drawn to that person for some reason, like a moth to a porch light. I'm just drawn to them. It's the presence of Jesus. God testifies to it by signs. 
as friends of Jesus. Wonders, I cannot believe that it all came to place. Various miracles, praise the Lord, they were healed. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. How many of you have the gift of administration and finance? Would you just show your hands? Are you good at administration and finance? Are you good at it? Yeah, okay. I am not. I love people who do balance sheets and Excel. I was teaching a college class once and I had a student there and she was like, I love Excel. Cool. I have no idea what she meant by this. It was a speech class. And do you know what her final speech was on? How much she loves the program Excel, which is a software that you use to do numbers and things. It was frightening. It was cultish. In the church, how many of you are really good with like little kids? You're just so good with like babies and yeah, yeah. I am not. I scare them. Because in every movie, the bad guy is always bald. <laughs> and they think they're dealing with uh, the bad guy from Alvin and the Chipmunks. They think they're dealing with Wilson Fisk from Daredevil. They think they're dealing with uh, uh, Lex Luthor, right? They don't want anything to do with me. Danny Warbuck? Sure. Make your own. So, you have gifts that I do not have. I have gifts that you do not have. There are only certain things that I can do according to the distribution of gifts, according to his will. I didn't ask for any of this. He gave it to me. Same way with you. But when we see each other functioning well as the body of Christ, that's a sign of God's presence. God testifies to it by signs, wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, the writer of Hebrews says all of this is a semiotic, because it's not just about the good time experience, it's a warning. What's he warning us about? How does he start in chapter 2? What's the first thing he says? We must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard. And then the writer lists all these things, but the reason they're telling us this is so that something doesn't happen. So what, yeah, exactly, so we don't drift away. So what happens if we don't pay attention? What happens if we lose our intention? What happens if we just let our faith sort of happen on its own without engaging with Jesus regularly? It falls apart. And here's the worst thing. You guys, you have now the burden of knowledge. Everyone in this room, you have hopefully heard the gospel enough by now to know that you can't claim ignorance. That, there, that I can't get away with telling God, well, I didn't know that I was supposed to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I didn't know. I didn't know that it wasn't okay for me to be impatient all the time and to just dismiss it because I'm a victim. I didn't know, Jesus, that it wasn't okay to keep chasing after this sin and that sin because I, all I heard about was your grace. I, I didn't know that you were going to hold me to account. And that's what happens if we don't pay attention. Why is it that when you got saved, Jesus didn't just go, come on, whoop, up to heaven and you just disappear. Right. Why? Why? Because he wants you here to help bring the healing of the kingdom of God. How many of you are breathing right now? Good, several of you. Good. I saw seven hands. Lord. So, you're still here. Why? Because there's a job to do. What's the job? Well, whatever he's called us to. So how do we find out what he's called us to? You have to be um, in the word and prayer enough to be able to recognize his voice, uh -huh. and which may not be, probably is not going to be audible. May not be. But when you feel that you're called, you also, does it 
does it mesh with what scripture says uh -huh. in the in the principles? Yeah. Um, and also in other godly people uh -huh. you talk to them. I think what you're talking about is paying attention to what we've heard. Uh -huh. So that we do not drift away. How luxurious it is that you got to take a week off of normal life to come to Bayshore. That's luxury. We have got it made in this country. There are Christians in this world who could never gather in a room like this with windows because they'd be killed instantly. They secretly meet underground and they pray and seek the Lord for hours. And here we are lounging about with our coffee. Bible. And we got our big screen. We got our... PowerPoint, and we, you know, we have this handheld printed copy of the scripture that people used to steal, and that's why they keep it on a chain in the church, and we've got all this stuff at our fingertips, all this wisdom, you can find teaching a thousand times better, all from all over the world, but if we don't pay attention to it, what's the point? And so then the writer, after talking about how Jesus is superior to angels, brings it all back as to why this matters. And then, in verse 5, he kind of jumps. She kind of jumps over to a new idea. He says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are about to speak. Which means it's not that the angels are going to be in charge. So we need to see, okay, who's going to be in charge? And then the writer says, But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. Now watch this. He says, You made him, Jesus, a little lower than the angels. Now, that was a temporary thing. When God comes to earth in Christ, he takes a position that's technically under the angels. And then uh, we go on to verse 8. After we see that he's been lowered than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, put everything under their feet. The commentaries on Hebrews say, it's not clear whether we're talking about Jesus or humanity. But in the end, it doesn't matter because it's only possible through the reign of Jesus. So then it says in verse 8, the second half, and putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Do you understand what this possibly means? It means that everything is under the reign of Christ. And that if you reign with Christ, everything is under you. If that's true, why is the world still a mess? <laughs> We're not paying attention. Sinful choices. Satan is still alive and well. Satan is alive and well and very active. Look it up in Ephesians six. There's work to be done still. God's kingdom doesn't reign on earth. His kingdom doesn't reign on earth. His kingdom is not the church. Those are two different things, by the by. And our knowledge is limited. I mean. Absolutely. We're done. Yeah, I am. I'll speak for myself. I am. Yeah. We don't know what we don't know. Yeah. So it's almost frustrating. Why is it that if everything is under Jesus, things are still not right? Why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God... Yeah, that's true. That's true free will. I agree with that. But I'm going to push a little deeper. Did we not pray enough for Lexi's development? That she has Down syndrome? Did I not pray with enough faith, or did I? Was it my mom's sinful choices that she died from cancer when she was fifty-seven? No, I don't know. Was God trying to teach her a lesson? No, no. By the by, this is just my thing. I'm just, I'm just kind of going off on a tangent here. I thought I'd try something different and go off on a tangent. <laughs> when somebody says that a hurricane, earthquake, tsunami is God's judgment, there's a problem that I have with that, and it's this: 
it makes it sound like the sacrifice of Jesus was not enough. Oh, I sacrificed my son to pay, cover all their sins. Ah, uh, but I still need to send a flood to wash a few away, a few more sins away. I don't, I don't see it that way. That would be like when you go out to dinner with somebody and say, "Hey, I, I want to take you guys all out to dinner. My treat." And then the bill comes, and I say, "I'll cover the bill, but could you guys all cover the tip?" I mean, you kind of go, "Ugh." Or if I go, "I'll cover the tip. Could you guys cover the bill?" You go, "No." <laughs> That's kind of how it feels. So we see that everything is subject to him. And yet we don't see that everything is subject to him. That's what the second part of verse 8 says. Everything is under them, or him, Jesus. God left nothing that is not subject to them, us reigning with Jesus. Yet at present we don't see everything subject to them. That's a weird sentence. Everything is under him, but we don't see it that way. But then, suddenly, the curtain rises in verse 9, and our man shows up. But we do see who? Jesus. That's the first time that Jesus is named. And did you notice too? Up to then, he's been referred to as the Son, right? Now, all of a sudden, he's Jesus. But did you notice that the writer didn't say Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, Jesus our King of Kings and Lord of Lords? In other New Testament books, anytime Christ is mentioned, it's always with a full title. It's like the full nameplate, all the things afterwards, all the things beforehand. This writer just says, it's Jesus. In doing that, just mentioning Jesus and not the whole name, he again is pointing to the human side of Jesus. If chapter 1 was all about the divinity of Christ, and chapter 2 is all about the humanity of Christ. Because he's fully God and fully man. First we have to realize that Jesus is divine and far superior to all things. Then we have to realize that this Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah, is yet one of us. And so the writer says in verse 9, We don't see everything, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor. How does he get this glory and honor? Suffering death. Why does he suffer this death? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for me. That's why we glorify and honor Jesus. He did all the things he didn't have to do in suffering and dying. And he's honored and glorified. It says in the scripture that if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up in due season. Jesus models this for us. And so in verse 10, we read that Jesus, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was his, it was his father that that God, by the way, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. Is there a problem with that statement? Making the pioneer of our faith, Jesus, perfect through what he suffered? What's the problem with that statement? He's already perfect, right? What did we just infer? That Jesus was imperfect until he suffered, right? Isn't that what it sounds like it says? It's not what it's saying. Jesus is perfect. The thing that makes him, watch me, finger quotes, perfect as a sacrifice and as a priest is that he experiences our humanity. Once he experiences our humanity, then he's perfect. That this is the whole plan. So if you jump ahead just briefly to verse 14, 214. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus was perfected when he put on human flesh so that he could die a human death. So my question is, you know, we don't see everything under him, but we do see Jesus, which is why we always turn our eyes upon Jesus. But there's something happening in the in-between. 
we call it spiritual formation. And this is where I love verse 11. If you follow Jesus, you have been justified. You have been made holy. And yet at the same time, you are being made holy through sanctification. Sanctified. What Jesus is doing in this moment right now is bringing you and I, many sons and daughters, to glory. And setting the way for us as a pioneer. But then look at, he identifies with us in verse 11. Jesus is the one who makes people holy. That's him. And he makes you holy. And then in making you holy, you become part of his family. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call you sister. Why should he be ashamed to call you sister or to call you brother? Why, why, would he, why should he be ashamed of that? Pretty well. Why, what would, what would be, the, be the reason that he would be ashamed? Why wouldn't Jesus want to associate with us on a purely human level? Why? Our sin. Our sin, right. Because what does he, he doesn't have sin. Did your parents ever tell you not to hang out with the wrong crowd? <laughs> you understand that, that Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd right now. Jesus, right? And you would think, if you really understood how offensive we are to God on our own, you realize that you and I have no business even being identified with him. Not only is Jesus coming to get us in this act of being our pioneer of salvation, he actually likes us. And he's not ashamed. He's not just like, Aaron's my buddy. Mm -mm. Aaron is my brother. That's what Jesus says. And I'm not ashamed of it. I love that guy. I'm going to hold him up. I love this guy. And you all know what he did and what he's like and who he is. And he knows most of all, I love this guy. I'm not ashamed to call this man my brother. I'm not ashamed to call this woman my sister. And so then the writer of Hebrews almost paints it like a, like a church service. And I imagine this scene in the tabernacle when I look at this. Um, in verse 12, again, we're quoting, quoting from a different testament, the Old Covenant. This is Jesus saying, I will declare your name, God, to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. So it's almost like, here's the worship service, and here's the throne of God. And Jesus stands up, and he says, he says to his brothers and sisters, hey, I want to declare to you the name of my dad, Yahweh. And he's your dad, too. And let's talk about what makes this Yahweh, my dad, so great. Blah, 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 blah. He says, but guess what? He's our dad. And then we're like, wow, brother Jesus, that's, that's amazing. Like, what's that like for you? He says, I'll tell you what it's like. I put my trust in him. And then we're thinking as his siblings, well, then we should probably do that too. Because he's the smart one. He is the smart one. He's the one who got it right. And then Jesus sort of ends the moment by saying, here am I and the children God has given me. You just don't get the sense that Jesus is frowning at this point. You think that he's like overjoyed because he's got the oil of joy, the joy of salvation, the joy of obedience. His father's plan has finally come to pass. And he's listening. He's not talking about people. He's talking about you. He's, he's thinking of you. He's talking about you. He's declaring this about you. If you know him. That is spiritual formation happening in us. Because look, verse 18. 2.18 Because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. And so when we go to him and we say, Jesus, I am being very tempted right now. 
You know what he doesn't say? Ugh, go away. You again? No. He's not the mean big brother. He's a loving brother. And he says, hey, sister, brother, I understand. This is what I did in that situation. And this is what I'm going to enable you to do in that situation. And then we get to verse 3. Or chapter 3, rather. There's another therefore, which references all of this. Chapter 1, Jesus is the Son of God. Chapter 2, Jesus is the Son of Man. And now we get to another therefore. Would somebody read Hebrews 3, 1 through 6? Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, please. Therefore, heavenly brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Stop. Okay. What did the writer of Hebrews just call you? <laughs> Holy brethren, brothers and sisters. Adelphos, Adelphos. You are brothers and sisters. So we've, we've identified this. Are you, a, are you a brother to Jesus? Anybody here a brother to Jesus? Anybody here a sister to Jesus? Anybody here my brother or sister? Am I your brother? Yeah. Okay, we all set? Good. That, that's the writer of Hebrews trying to get us to. Could you read just the first part again? Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Stop. Okay. Thank you. So, what is this partaker of a heavenly calling thing? What's that? Joint heir. What? Joint heir. What does that mean, joint heir? That we inherit with Jesus yeah, that's, that's true. We are definitely heirs with Jesus. But like, let's talk about the calling. What is the heavenly calling? Does my phone go off? What is that? Is that a, is that a megaphone announcement at Deja? Or, or like, what, what is the heavenly calling? How do you We're describe it? We're to continue the mission that Jesus had started. That's true, but simplify it. Smoosh it down even more. What's the heavenly calling? Because that sounds like something that happened. That sounds like a specific event. Called to him. Is that a specific event? It, What's that? The conversion? Okay. What do we got over here? Testify what God has done for you. Okay. Being saved. Being saved. It's the Holy Spirit telling us that it's true. Okay. 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 Good. Somebody over here said being saved. I want to talk about. Is that are are we people who share in the heavenly calling? Which means all of us have to have something. You responded to a heavenly calling, and so did I. So I want to know, like, when in the Chronos and the timeline did I respond Our to this? Spiritual birth, isn't it? Was like being born again? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So okay. Good. That's good. So it's our spirit. Just my. It's me being reborn, right? Yeah. It's new. New center. Where you're centered on something different. Yeah. I was over here. I was a total disaster, and then I did this thing called re repent, which is a church word, and it's me. You know, normally I'm just kind of walking my own way. I'm just going the way Adam wants to go, the way Adam splashes directing Adam, and it's, a, it's always a mess. We don't like to call it that, but it's a mess. And then something causes me to repent, to turn to the cross, to literally change direction and start walking a different way. Isn't that our conversion point in some way, shape, or form? Now, some of us have like that instant, it was March 4th, 1995, Tuesday, sunny. I was in a canoe out in the bay, and I just, like, some of us can do that. Yeah. Some of us are more like C.S. Lewis, where he jumps on a motorcycle sidecar, and by the time he arrived at his destination, he was a Christian. Some of you are like me, whereas you don't remember where it was, but somewhere in there, God revealed himself. And somewhere in there, you, you believe and follow. But I don't have an awesome conversion story. I don't. It's pretty, pretty tame. But that's not what it's about. At some point, I responded to the heavenly calling. But here's my question. I want to go even deeper. What prompted the heavenly calling? Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven. Yeah. Because I didn't initiate the call. I answered a call. Yes. God was always ready. 
Oh, yeah. And guess what? What you are espousing right now is a theology that is not shared by all followers of Jesus. Um, yeah, what did you say again? God was always ringing. God was always ringing. Calling. Calling. Not everybody shares in this. Provenient grace. Read the John Wesley quote to yourself if you would. <laughs> Wesley, John Wesley, founder of Methodism, is talking and he says, Provenient grace, enabling grace, is like that first wish to please God. The first dawn of light concerning God's will and the first slight transient conviction of having sinned against Him. There are some views that say that the heavenly calling is meant only for a certain person and that God predetermines whether you will receive the call or not. And that you have essentially no choice in the matter. Yeah. There are some views that say <coughs> salvation is available to any and all who would believe. But that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved. We call that universalism. What it means is all of you have the capacity to hear the heavenly calling, and all of you are in God's will able to be saved. Yet, our free will is still in the mix. But the thing that gets us started is not my free will that says, I need to become a better person. I'm going to try Christianity. It doesn't work that way. Our free will still has to respond to that call. And we know that we're responding to the heavenly call when there's something in us that says, I need to get right with God. When there's something in us that says, oh my goodness, he's He's much more bigger than just sort of this being that created us and is ignoring us. He has a will. Then you realize, oh man, he is holy and different from me. So, could you read Hebrews chapter 3? Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Why is it that my brothers and sisters, all of us who at some point responded to the heavenly call by his provenient grace. Provenient, by the way, means grace that goes before. It's like the grace that paves the way. It's like the only thing that made it so that you could respond to God was God. Okay? So, so the writer of Hebrews is saying, we're, we're siblings. We've all gotten this, this call by God's grace. Now do something. What does the writer of Hebrews tell us to do? Just in that one verse. Yeah, it's not that difficult. It's not a trick question. Right? Consider Jesus. is another great way to say it. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Not consider like, consider having orange juice instead of milk. Not like that. That's, that's what we would use consider for. But consider means to put him in the forefront of your heart and mind always. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Yeah. Um, just quick going back to like the predestination yeah. thing. It's always confused me in Romans chapter 8. When it's like verse 13, he's saying, yeah. and those he predestined, predestined, he also called, those he called, he also justified, uh, those he justified, he also glorified. Yeah. Like, does that, because people have made that argument, like, when oh. we're having those debates, and I'm like, okay, yeah. but, like, mm, that mm-hmm. makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, so. That's a great question. I'm very glad you asked that. Kevin, would you come answer? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, here's, here's how I answer it. 
Um, one, we're translating the scripture from a language we do not speak. So, uh, and as modern, postmodern people, we put a lot of weight in language. And so the word predestination is a buzzword that can mean two things. One, um, for a Calvinist, it means that's, that God has only predestined some and not, not others for this or that. For a Wesleyan, my view is that God really has predestined that all of us would be saved, but that doesn't mean that all of us will be. And so when you, when you respond to the Father, of course you were predestined to be saved. Of course, because, because, because everybody is, but not everybody will be because he still respects us and maintains our free will. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yes, I'm predestined to be a Wesleyan. <laughs> they hate that. <laughs> I'm married into to a Baptist family. My wife is, is Baptist. It's just to, I just wanted to expand the, the pool. So um, my, my, my father-in-law and I... Anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah. You might differ. But we love each other all. And by the way, here's the other thing. Please don't use this as arsenal to hate. Predestination, please, Lord, no. Satan would love that. Satan would love for us to bicker and complain about. Because here's the thing: in the end, you all end up in the same place. Some people are saved, and some people aren't. The the intricacies of how we get to that, and what God knows, and what God wills—that's where it gets a little fuzzy. But we're ants trying to understand the moon, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, I have a hard time trying to figure out if people that have never been. Never heard. Never heard of children that have not, you know, we've been brought up in it or we've heard of it because we're in a free country and there's a lot of places that haven't had that opportunity. So how do you explain that? So I would say that God is not, that God is motivated by love and justice. And the view that God is motivated first by love and justice is that his grace works in such a way where I don't think he, that he would hold to account someone who has literally never had any chance of hearing the gospel. As an aside, there are stories where Muslims are, are encountering Jesus in their dreams and waking up saved. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, if that's how he wants to do it, great. So I don't know. That's cool. Um, yeah. yeah. Predestination. Um, 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is. is not slow about his promises, uh-huh. as many account slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing for any to yes. perish, uh-huh. but for all to come to repentance. Keep going about the day in a thousand years thing. But the day of the Lord will be like a thief in, in which the heavens will pass away, and the roar and the elements will be destroyed, and intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all things there will be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you be in holy conduct and godliness? Right. The, the hastening and the coming of the day of God, uh-huh. on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, uh-huh. and the elements will melt with intense heat. Okay, but there, is it before that that he says, remember with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years? Isn't that but in the there? day of the Lord will come like a thousand mm-hmm. years? Go before that, go up, up more. Before your first, first day. Yeah, before, yeah. For with the Lord, for he's not wanting any of you to come to, to, to perish. It's like trying to read it. It's weird. Well, okay. So anyway. Um, another reason that you and I are here right now. Why is it that when I got saved, I didn't go right to heaven? Perhaps it could be so that I could tell people who aren't saved about Jesus. Now, it's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm his follower. And so are you. Yeah? Right. Great commission. 
Yeah, that's a great commission. Not, not just a good commission, but a great commission. Okay, so you and I, my brothers and sisters, sharing in the heavenly calling, <coughs> casting our thoughts on who? Jesus. And what are we acknowledging him as? Apostle and high priest. So that word apostle means one who is sent, which is, by the way, how Jesus refers to his guys, right? He says, I'm sending you out. They're the apostles. Mm -hmm. Like, Jesus has the same term. So Jesus uses the same term to describe us as he does to describe his own ministry. And yet Jesus is also our high priest, and the job of a priest is essentially to get us into God's presence safely, right? And so Jesus himself takes this role as both priest and sacrifice, which again is just, it's just so, so twisty. Yeah, okay, so 2 Peter 3a, right before verse 9, it says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And then it says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. Who does God want to save? Everybody. everybody. Is everybody going to be saved? No. It's possible, but I don't think so. Will everybody be automatically saved? No. no. What has to happen for somebody to be saved? Respond to the heavenly calling. To whom is the heavenly calling sent? At some point, we hope everyone. What about those unreached populations? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know there's pervenient grace. And then we get to verse 2. Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. But Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness that what would be spoken by God in the future, to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly our confidence in the hope which we glory. Really quick, let's come up with some ways that Jesus is similar to Moses. Spit them out. One at a time, preferably. Faithful. Okay, so Jesus is faithful just as Moses was faithful, right? He he, he, yeah, he brings a covenant. Moses' job was to bring the law. We call him the lawgiver. He's the one that brings the covenant. Good. Jesus did the same thing. New covenant. What else? Liberator. Liberator. Was Moses a liberator? Yeah, yeah he tried. Yeah, he, he was. He was a liberator. Jesus is a liberator. How else is Moses, are Moses and Jesus similar? They both point to God the Father. What's that? They point to God the Father. They point to Yahweh. That's Yahweh. They were both sent. They were both sent. They were both chosen and appointed. Again, Jesus submits himself to appointment by his Father. Yeah? They both survived a mass killing of children. They what? <laughs> true, true. They, both, true. they both survived a mass killing of children. Yes, that is true. Yeah. Go, go a little deeper on that. Um, they were meant to survive because they had a purpose. Uh -huh. So where's the mass killing in Exodus? that Moses is saved from, right? He's put in a little basket and he's floating in the water. Where's the mass killing in the, new time, in the, in the Christmas story? What's his name? says, kill all the children under two. Angel says, the angel, the messenger of God says, flee. Remember that? That's great insight. Very, very good. Out of Egypt? Jesus is a Middle Eastern guy. You guys know that, right? He's not a white American. He's not. How are they similar as priests? They're not Levites. <laughs> yeah, sort of. They're from intercessors. They're, they're intercessors, yes. Yes. 
Oh, well, yeah. Moses really wasn't passionate. He was like, I don't want to do this. Remember that? But then Aaron actually. Everybody out. Yeah, okay. right. Oh, yeah, and, he, and Moses, there it is. He's an intercessor. Moses intercedes. Okay, great. We can come up with a hundred more. Now the question is, how is Moses different from Jesus? He's created. He's created. Is Jesus created? No. No. Moses. Yeah, Moses sinned. Moses had his own sins to worry about in the presence of Yahweh. Did Jesus? No. Now it says in verse 5 that Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. That's true, right? Was Jesus faithful as a servant? Sure. But look at, the, look at verse 6. There's a but, which means, now hold on, there's something different here. But Christ is different in that he's faithful as a son over God's house which is different from just a servant. I had a summer job where my, I worked for a plumbing company. And I got the job through my friend's dad, and my friend's dad was the boss. And my job, it was a fun job. My job was to go to people's houses who were getting new bathrooms. My job was to tear out the old one. And so all I had to do was go into a room like that, because they wanted to get all new everything, countertops, floors, shower, the whole thing. And they would say to me, Adam, take it all out. And I was like Hulk, and I was like, to what level? You know, are we going down? To, are we going down to studs or what? You know, like how far are you going to go? And I say, well, go go right down to studs, get it all out. And that was the funnest job in the world. My job was to destroy. Yes. The hardest part was taking the toilet out because you know what happened. <laughs> but beyond that, it was a totally fun, totally fun job. So that was my job, and I worked with my friend whose dad was the boss. Now, guess who had a lot more pull than I did? <laughs> the boss's son. So we both had the same job, but if we wanted to break for lunch early, I'd say, hey, Keith, dude, can, can we? I'll talk to my dad, right? And wouldn't you know it, we'd break early for lunch. An intercessor. Uh, yeah, an intercessor, right. Hey, Keith, would you intercess for my hunger needs? I don't think I'm going to take the time to do this right now, but if you go over to 2 Corinthians in your spare time and just look at what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18, he helps us understand the similarity but difference. And what the writer of Hebrews is really trying to get to is, yes, Jesus is similar to Moses. Again, he wants his Hebrew, Jewish, Israelite audience to be able to make some kind of earthly comparison to something they're very familiar with. They're very familiar with Moses. So they... So they're saying, all right, consider all that that Moses can do, but think about how Jesus is way better at it than Moses. The reason I want to move ahead is because of verse 6, the second part of verse 6. We talked about the first part. It says, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Boom. Then there's that last sentence. The writer says, and we are his house. Awesome. But then there's a pesky word in there, if. We are God's house, if. That's a circleable, circleable, circleable. Encircle that one. Just make a mark. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope to which we glory. To put it another way, we can only claim to be part of God's house if we are consistent with what we claim to believe. Anybody convicted yet? Yeah. Somebody find Hebrews three fourteen and just and just read that for us. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Okay. We are his if. There's that if word again. Mm -hmm. If we hold fast. Holding fast. Now find Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, somebody. 
1019, all the way to 25. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Pause for just a second, because here's the key verse. Go ahead, 23, please. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Say, hold on. Hold on. That's what he's telling us to do. Hold on to this. Keep going. For he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, mm -hmm. not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here's a great question you could ask your brother and sister. Are you holding on? Are you holding on? Are you holding fast? Are you holding on? Because Jesus is faithful. Am I? I need people to ask me, Adam, are you holding on? Because sometimes I'm like, you know, I'm not, because I'm trying to manage this thing on my own. It's not mine to do. I need to hold on. How about Hebrews 6, 13 to 20? I love this. I think this is my favorite verse. I'm not going to tell you which one in particular, but in this mix of 613 to 20 is one of my favorites. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Oh, okay. By the way, one time I was teaching a speech class, and someone got up to do a speech on why we should keep our language pure as Christians, and they used that verse as um, we shouldn't swear. <laughs> Different. There's cussing. Yeah. Let me give you some examples. No. And then there's <laughs> swearing when you swear by an oath, like hand up. There, that's different. Okay. Just doesn't. That's not saying that Jesus swears. That's not what it means. Okay. You swear by yourself. Sometimes my children will swear by themselves in their room under their breath, but I still hear them. Watch your language, pal. Like that. I just want to make sure. I would have thought that that was a no-brainer, but there are some people who will go, wait, swear, swearing. That's wrong. That's bad. Right. No, no, it's not that. Okay. So, and oh, also, by the way, um, the writer is making it a point that Jesus is superior to Abraham. Okay, could you keep going, please? And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that... By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Mm -hmm. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That is some rich theology. This whole week we could have hung out in 613 to 20. My favorite verse, maybe yours, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. I love the imagery of an anchor. I, I understand anchor because I certainly understand waves and storms. I understand what an anchor is. And that this anchor is like a chain. It has attached to it a chain that comes to where I am and that, and that anchor terminates in the very presence of God. That's me holding on. I'm holding on to something stable because when it all falls apart, 
Who in the world are you going to hold on to? To who will you turn? So brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, may I just encourage you in this moment, hold on tight. Another distinctive of Wesleyan theology. We don't like to talk about it, but we do believe that it is possible for one to know Jesus, follow Jesus, and at some point truly turn their back on him. Backsliding. Called oh, backsliding, yeah. It, it, that, and, the, and the phrase we would use is to, that someone might lose their salvation. That becomes a really prickly pair, too, because one, um, it's sad. It's not meant to be a warning. It's like a sad thing. We would never want anyone to have that experience. Um, two, it ends up being very confusing. It makes us all nervous. Like, what happens if I sin and then I get hit by one of those golf carts and die? Like, am I going to go to hell because the last thing I did was, no, that's, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. So, okay. So I'm just, I'm just encouraging you with writer of Hebrews, don't let go. So can we do a quick work? What causes us to loosen our grip? Busyness. What's that? What? Busyness. Busyness, yeah. Yeah. Because our hands are busy elsewhere. What causes us to loosen our grip? Discouragement. Discouragement. Oh, sure. Things are going as I expected. Is God even God? Children. How so? <laughs> and we all say, as parents, we say, Amen. But I'd like to do a little further in that. Yeah. Our we lose our grips, we lose our minds. Yeah. 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 In the moment, it's easy to parent in your flesh. Oh, yes. Oh, hey, let me give you some encouragement. In the moment, it's easy to parent by your flesh. You, does, you know what that's churchy terms? You know what that means? Because you're not thinking about what Jesus would do in that moment, you're thinking about how mad you are. <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah. Let, can I give you some encouragement, parents? Yeah. Um, <laughs> your children. Let me write this down. <laughs> I don't think it's write downable, but your children can play a big part in your spiritual formation. So let them. So when you lose your cool, when you have a moment where you just didn't do the right thing, where you were not Jesus, but you were Adam, first Adam, or me, or whatever, in that moment, you, can, you confront yourself in their presence, and you get down where they are, and you look them in the eye, and you say, I am so sorry that I responded that way. It wasn't right, and I have no excuse. You don't give a but. I'm so, you don't say, I'm so sorry I responded that way, but you were kind of snotty. You don't do that. <laughs> they got their sin, but so do you. And you're just there to talk about your sin with them. And I, I asked the Lord to forgive me, and I, I would like to ask you to forgive me too. Would you forgive me for that? Mm -hmm. Emily and I have discussions like that with our kids. We have two boys, man. They're 9 and 12. I thought that having two boys would be like having two boys. It's like having 80 boys. <laughs> because they multiply off each other, right? It's, it's exponential. <laughs> the Higgs boson thing happening in our, in our basement. So like, Emily and I have to have these kind of conversations with them fairly regularly. Malachi, I'm really sorry, man. Yeah, I was frustrated. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me for that? Yeah. Because I, I don't want them to see that I'm the perfect dad. I want them to see that I'm the broken dad who seeks Jesus. Because otherwise they're going to grow up and think they need to be the per perfect dad. Well, anyway, that's not. Okay. So Exodus 15.22. What causes us to lose our grip? 
It says in Exodus 15.22 that Moses, there's our guy, we were just talking about who's superior to Moses? Jesus. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. They went into the desert of Shur. Sure they did. Exodus 15.22. For three days they traveled. Three days. Mm-hmm. Great. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. Thank you. Exodus. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Speaking of parenting, they're complaining. Isn't that funny? <laughs> then verse 25, Then Moses cries out, interceding to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, which is not what Moses was asking for. <laughs> I need some yeah. water, Lord. Here's some wood. Okay, so the Lord shows him a piece of wood. Moses throws the wood into the water, and the water became fit to drink. So it was a Brita stick. Okay? <laughs> but the Lord, like a good father, does not allow this moment to pass without teaching. He said, here's the ruling, you guys. If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in His eyes, if you pay attention to His commands and keep all His decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. The writer of Hebrews is trying to remind us not to loosen our grip. And he's trying to really remind us not to complain about God's lack of provision. Because all that does is draw attention to ourselves and away from the one to whom we are to fix our eyes. Which is why the writer says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, join me as we fix our eyes on Jesus. Same thing is talked about in Exodus 17. And then, of course, um, Hebrews 10.25. I'll just jump to it really fast. <coughs> No, I won't. I'm going to save that. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Okay, let's jump ahead, way ahead to Hebrews 4. I recommend that you, you just check out Hebrews 3, maybe even today. It's so good. So, in Hebrews 4, we have a new mention of a hero of the faith, and it's Joshua. And there's another therefore in Hebrews 4 because the writer is building a case, building a case, building a case. We get to another therefore. And then he talks about the promise of entering his rest, the Sabbath rest. He says, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of that rest. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was, was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who believed. In other words, they didn't respond to the heavenly calling in a positive way. If we have believed, we've entered his rest. But God has said, in anger I will not let them enter my rest. And yet, his work has been finished since the creation of the world. And then the writer of Hebrews reminds us of the Genesis account. And yet, we still haven't found that rest that has been promised. Verse 6, Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, they didn't hold fast, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, which references the Meribah thing that we were just talking about. And then we get to Josh, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. So, I don't know what you remember about your Old Testament story, but Moses never got them to the place that they were meant to get to. Joshua, in a sense, did Jump with me over to Joshua 22. Verse 
Joshua 22. The writer of Hebrews is making a case. Jesus is superior to angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to Joshua. We got the angel thing cleared up. We got the Moses thing cleared up. But the Joshua thing is a little tougher to clear up because in a sense Joshua was effective. Look at Joshua 22, 1 through 5. It says in Joshua 22 that he, he summoned, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribes of Manasseh and said to them, You've done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. You've obeyed me in everything I've commanded. For a long time now, to this very day even, you've not deserted your fellow Israelites, but you've carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. So in a sense, Joshua was effective. What do you remember from yesterday about the dual nature of prophecy? That yes, Joshua was able to get them to rest. He was able to get them to the place Moses couldn't. But maybe that wasn't the ultimate rest that God was going for. Maybe the rest of the Old Testament, the Sabbath of the Old Testament, the place of resting in the Old Testament was merely a semiotic, a sign to the actual spiritual rest that we get through Jesus. I guarantee that some of you are more tired today than you were on Monday, right? Okay? So you can't wait to get home and recover from your vacation, right? And so there's this physicalness to our, to our energy levels, and that's kind of what Joshua is looking at, is they need a physical rest. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, physical, schmizical, you need a spiritual rest. You need to actually rest in the presence of God, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, if you're finding that you are spiritually not at rest, watch out because it could be because you're not holding on to the hope which you claim. Not meant to make us feel bad. It's a warning to pay attention. Have you ever broken an arm before? Has anyone broken an arm or like, what did they do to discover your arm was broken? X-ray, right? Is the x-ray mean? No, it's just telling you what's true. It's just telling you what, what happened and what needs, what needs to happen to make it fix. This is diagnostic stuff. So, so the writer of Hebrews is not being mean, saying, be careful not to enter. Be careful, you don't let go. He's giving you a diagnostic because he knows, he knows, she knows, this writer of Hebrews, how our hearts really work. Now, we see that Jesus is superior to the angels and to Moses and Aaron and the systems, as we read about in Hebrews 5, and we notice we've picked up speed significantly. And so in Hebrews 5, it talks about the high priest and this system that we've had. And we're just going to have to stop there. Man, it gets so deep. Is it okay if we stop there and finish it tomorrow? I guarantee we'll get done. Not with the book of Hebrews, but with the week, tomorrow. <laughs> I think actually if we do this right, we can make it all the way to the last word of Hebrews 13. <laughs> but you've got to hold on. You're going to be ready? Yeah. Now there's the coffee bar thing today, right? Doing the coffee thing today, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to juice up today. Don't sleep. Just come in tomorrow just ready to go. And then at, at maybe noon, enter the Sabbath rest. Okay? <laughs> this is going to be great. Because, uh, just to give you a foreshadow, um, we're going to talk about Melchizedek. You know who Melchizedek is, right? Yeah. You all know? I don't. So if you can teach me who he is, I think I know who he is. He's a this is a troublemaker. This is one of the reasons Hebrews is such a pain as a book. That's why I love it. 
Anyway, um, is it all right if I pray this out, or do you have anything to share? Okay. May, I, may I pray for us? May I pray for you? All right, would you join me in this? Again, Jesus, we have covered a lot of information, but Lord, save us from information overload, and Lord, bring us to spiritual transformation. I pray for my brothers and sisters, those of us who share in this heavenly calling. First, we just say thank you for your heavenly calling. Thank you for seeing us as worth your time and worth your sacrifice and worth your attention even now. Of all the things you could be doing, for whatever reason, you've chosen to pay attention to us and to even be with us in this room. And now, Lord, I pray that um, as we go, we would be especially aware of your presence. And I pray that you would just keep building momentum in this session and in the other sessions that have met or will meet this morning with our kids and our students. I pray that across Bayshore that we would just have a special sense of your holy presence so that we don't miss whatever it is you want to do in us. Help us to hold fast. Help us to pay attention. And help us to love you and each other more and more. We thank you for the brothers and sisters around us, and we thank you for those who have yet to respond to the call. And we pray that more and more would come to know you, Jesus, even because of what we've talked about here today. That's our prayer. That's our desire. We love you. Amen. Amen. Go in his name. See you tomorrow.